Welcome to Ing Podcast, a production of Menno Media's Leader Magazine. Our world is increasingly complex, fast-paced, and divided. How are people of faith bringing their best selves to the world each day? How are we leading, growing, and being as people of God? Ing Podcast is a place to share insights and stories from individuals creatively engaging the present and moving into the future. On today's episode, we sit down with Dr. Stephanie Crable, a scholar, advocate, and speaker with expertise in social change movements, trauma, and institutional violence. There's also like another level of opportunity because you can think, you can pose the question to yourself, like when I make the decision to um, prioritize people who have been harmed in this way, like what kind of potential is there for spiritual transformation. So much of the resistance to talking about sexual violence comes from a resistance to feeling loss and grief. And, you know, that's that's a spiritual challenge that, that we should be up for. <laughs> we need to be up for it. This is part two of our conversation with Dr. Grable. You can go back and listen to part one on Ing Podcast Episode 8, Advocating. We hope you enjoy Welcome, friends, to Ing Podcast. I'm really excited today to have some time to talk with Dr. Stephanie Crable. Dr. Crable is the executive director and co-founder of Into Account, an organization that offers support for survivors and allies seeking justice, accountability, and recovery in Christian contexts, and the Connected Storytelling Initiative, Our Stories Untold, which offers a platform for survivors of sexual violence to have their stories known. And we'll touch on some of those things in our conversation today. But first, I just want to say thank you so much, Dr. Crable. Can I call you Stephanie for taking the time with us today to um, to be here? Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. I just interviewed someone who does a lot of work at dismantling white supremacy within um, institutions, uh, faith institutions specifically. And um, he talked a little bit about um, the dysphoria that's created when uh, people with privilege, specifically white Christians, talk about how uh, painful it makes them to talk about racial injustice. Yeah. And so when you are a person of color who's experienced that actually in real life, mm-hmm. having someone uh, excuse themselves from the conversation because they just don't like that it makes them feel a little off <laughs> just becomes this really dysphoric experience. And I, I imagine the same is true with um, with survivors of sexual violence too, that like when the church doesn't want to talk about this because it makes them feel pain that's a milder version of the pain that I've actually experienced. And that's the reason we don't talk about this. That, that just must be jarring for, for those who've lived it. Yeah. Yeah. And if you think about, if you think about how much emotional labor and actual labor <laughs> and like just all forms of labor within, uh, within white dominant churches, how, ha- is being done by women of color right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then you think about like what we know about the experience of being a woman of color in this society, which is like almost everybody's like a survivor of sexual violence on some level. Like there is just, it's, it's astounding to me how hard it is for people to take what happens to bodies seriously (laughs) is a form of violence. 
I, I mean, I think part of, part of what's happening in Mennonite communities is that they are so oriented around pacifism as, as something that, you know, it develops, whether you use the, the term non-resistance or pacifist, I mean, it depends on what sect of Mennonites you're part of, but, but it developed as a discourse, a masculine, a masculinist discourse that was an alternative to militarism. And, you know, when you have that, <laughs> you, you need to re you, you need to have another form of masculinity, whether that is uh, responsible masculinity or, you know, I am going to, or like leadership. There are all kinds of forms of masculinity that aren't militaristic and still have great capacity for abuse. That's a really difficult thing to name in Mennonite contexts because people have suffered a lot to define themselves against militarist masculinity. I mean, there's trauma yeah. around that too. And I often think that some of what I'm witnessing in Mennonite circles is people not understanding that like we all have different forms of trauma and we can hold them together if we stop trying to erase each other. Yeah. And like white white masculinity in this culture is they it it sort of operates as though it's always under threat and so it always needs to dominate. Yeah. Um yeah. and that yeah, those are those those dynamics can manifest through peace theology just like they can manifest through other mm. other ideological um yeah, <laughs> we're we're watching that right now in in the political sphere mm -hmm. uh, yep. with the sort of power of uh, white Christianity uh, expressing that it is uh, under attack, right? Yeah. And yep. uh, it's a it's a wonderful preservationist move to just claim oppression and absolutely keep holding and, that up. And it's it's a popular even it's a it's an evangelical thing for sure. We're we're definitely seeing that on the <laughs> national stage right now. Um, but I think it's been a hard thing for Mennonites to know how to get ahead of, to know how to mm -hmm. like meaningfully talk, talk about it because Mennonites have their own raging case of it. <laughs> yes. You know, and, and actually some, some lived persecution too. Like, sure. you know, we've got the Martyr's Mirror book that actually has pictorial depictions of real persecution. And so we like to think that that is still who we are and yeah. we hold it up and, yep. Yeah, it's, it's tough. I've heard you talk a lot about um, the ways that forgiveness is used as a tool of manipulation in so many of these uh, instances. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, the uses of forgiveness, that kind of across across the board in Christian contexts, I see that I see that misused. When people ask me about it, I encourage them to think about what their definition is of forgiveness. Um, because when the, when the word is weaponized, when the concept is weaponized, um, it benefits from not being clarified. <laughs> um, and survivors often hear it in the context of like, you need to forget, like it, I mean, it, what is communicated to survivors is your inability to stop making this a thing means yeah. that you are not a forgiving person and therefore you're not a good Christian. And basically what we want in order for you to prove that you are, that you have forgiven your perpetrator, we want you to shut up. 
<laughs> I mean, that's yeah. what survivors hear. And I think very rightly, <laughs> uh, you know, that, that is what is being communicated to them. Like, you know, eight times out of 10, when people are talking about forgiveness in Christian context, it's just a way of, of shutting down the conversation. Um, but I've talked to many survivors about what forgiveness means to them personally. And what I find is that people just have a whole bunch of different definitions. I mean, there's some people who are like, forgiveness does not like, why would I even think about that? Like, what, what does that, (laughs) what, why is that a thing that I'm aspiring to? Some people believe that forgiveness is a thing that has nothing to do with where you know, where the perpetrator is, um, in terms of their understanding of (laughs) what they've done to the victim. But, um, it's something that like, as a victim, as a survivor, you need to do for yourself in order to be free of, of, um, you know, the power that your perpetrator has over you. I've heard some survivors talk about forgiveness that way. And that's like, you know, I mean, that's, I'm not casting shade on that at all. Um, What I would say is that I think we have a sort of popular idea that the only way that survivors can heal is through forgiving their perpetrators. And I just want to say that's absurd. (laughs) That's absurd. Like forgiveness, if you want to think of forgiveness as like, you look at your perpetrator and you say, (laughs) I am no longer going to hold you accountable for the harm that you've caused to me. And I am not going to hold anyone else accountable for the ways in which they may have contributed to that harm. Um, If that is what forgiveness means, (laughs) um, then it doesn't have any transformative potential for building a culture where sexual violence doesn't exist. Like we have... The thing is, like, forgiveness is, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's redeemable as a concept because it's been abused so much. I mean, I I don't enjoy, I don't enjoy talking about it particularly, but like, I guess I always just want to change the question to Mm -hmm. what, okay, why is this still happening? We have been talking about forgiveness for years and we still live in a culture in which sexual violence is kind of our default setting. I mean, this is a ubiquitous right. problem. So what happens when we orient the question towards, okay, this happened. What do we do to make sure it doesn't happen again? I, I know that um, a significant portion of our Ing podcast listeners would be part of church leadership in some way. And I know there have been a lot of well-intentioned church leaders who have made these situations worse. Can you speak a little bit to how church leaders can walk with, especially walking with survivors in healthier kinds of ways? And I wonder if you might reference uh, how much of that should the church leader take on on their own versus trying to find outside systems to support these uh, moments? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'd start by saying that I... I'm often in the position of, of critiquing church leaders um, because people come, people come to us when they've had traumatic experiences with church leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, I want, I want to recognize that it's a really hard position to be in. 
Um, it's hard to know what to do because for one thing, there aren't very many good models. Like our models are of people messing up. Um, but one thing that seems to happen a lot is that, you know, initially there can be a lot of, (laughs) a lot of sympathy for survivors, a lot of empathy, a lot of like, we are going to get this right. I'm going to stand with you. We've got this. And when you feel that empathic desire or that, you know, that convicted desire to get it right. I think the first thing that you have to do is build as a, as a church leader is reach out and make sure that you have accountability systems for yourself in place and that they are not just within your own congregation and your own community. Um, Mm. Whether it's, you know, whether it's reaching out to an organization like into account whether it is like contacting the people in your community who you know are experts. Um, even if you know a lot about sexual violence, even if you are a survivor yourself, um, and many women clergy are because women clergy are targeted. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you want to speak specifically about women clergy, um, even if those, even if you have some lived or acquired expertise, you still need that external accountability. Um, because it is impossible to be a a lone wolf advocate, regardless of like what your actual position is like, Mm -hmm. um, so there's that. And then there's also that, I mean, what, one of the things that seems to cause a lot of trauma for survivors in church settings is the shaming and the tone policing. Um, people who have experienced trauma are not always polite, (laughs) about it and shouldn't have to be. Um, but you know, I mean, I'm, I'm working on a case right now that has about 50 victims who have reported to me thus far of the same perpetrator. And then, you know, this is the David Haas case, um, David Haas, the Catholic liturgical Mm -hmm. composer. And, you know, that is a, a, a base of, of people from, you know, age 65 to age 23 of the women who have reported to me. So, you know, we've got like over three generations of people with a whole bunch of different norms about how to interact with the institutions that they're asking for accountability. And when you have a situation like that, you see really quickly how people who are in positions of, of institutional power choose the survivors who they find most palatable. (laughs) Um, And then, then survivors have to work on not, not letting the institution or the people within the institution foment division between them. So I think there's a real sort of, I mean, I I guess I want to say default setting again, there's a, there's a (laughs) defaulting towards divide and conquer with survivors towards like, you know, survivors that are more invested in the church, survivors who don't say things like, I just want to burn the Bible, survivors who don't, yeah. <laughs> you know, who who are willing to give church processes the benefit of the doubt, even when they don't necessarily deserve the benefit of the doubt. Like those survivors are always going to be easier for church leaders to help, or yeah. they often are. And that doesn't mean <laughs> that the survivors who are like, this church process is rigged against me. 
(laughs) And I am going to make a big stink over here about it because that's the only way I'm going to get accountability. If you're not listening to those survivors too, as a church leader, and you say, well, they're so difficult, I can't even deal with them. um, You're failing somewhere. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and it's, it's hard because like, you know, you're, you're going to be dealing with a lot of competing pressures. Like the people in your congregation will often just want this to be over with. But I, I think one of the best things that you can do if you are confronted with this as a pastor or a church leader is look at the community that you're part of and, and find out what happened the last time this happened. <laughs> because I guarantee you there, there's a last time that this happened, you know? Yeah. Every community has these experiences. Find out what are the patterns that have already manifested in this community and let that be part of what shapes your response. Not not in a sense that you just react and do the opposite, but okay, <laughs> what happened? Were, you know, who was cared for? Who felt that they weren't cared for? Um, who was holding whom accountable? Um, did the person who was harmed stay part of the community? Did the person who did the harming stay as part of the community? Ask all of those questions and you'll get a sense of, of what, what you have to look out for when you're, when you're dealing with another situation like this. I'm curious if you have any energy to address this question that keeps coming up of what, so what do we do with the work of people who are known abusers? Like what do we do with John Howard Yoder and David Haas? I would definitely um, encourage people who are um, part of a Mennonite community. Um, And even if you're not, (laughs) like even if you're just to look at the resource that um, my colleague uh, Hillary Scarcella developed together with the um, the Voices Together uh, Mennonite Hymnal Committee or Anabaptist Hymnal Committee, um, and they did that collaboratively after um, they found out about David Haas, and you know the David Haas cases, you know, it's, it's a primarily a Catholic case, but for, you know, for a variety of reasons into account has ended up being the primary place that survivors Mm. have been going to for, for support and, you know, to report their stories. And so, um, we were kind of involved with that, with voices together from the get go, because they reached out to us. And with that, what I really appreciate about that resource is that Hillary, makes it really clear that like there is no like definitive answer to these questions about what do you do with abusive what do you do with abusive uh people's work and what she suggests is what happens when all of the you know all of the all of the things that we say when we get overwhelmed by this, like, okay, so we're applying our modern standards of what constitutes abuse to the work of people throughout history. And is anybody going to be left and blah, 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 blah. And she's like, okay, what happens when you ask the question, how do I attend to the survivors in my own community? You know, what if, what, what does it mean to continue to use this music or to study this theology in a community where there are sexual violence survivors. 
And what are they asking for? <laughs> um, how do you build a survivor-centered process of discernment around this stuff? Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, for instance, with, with David Haas's work, um, you know, I can say very, as, as the, the primary advocate who's been working with women who have been sexually victimized by him, like, I don't have any problem saying y'all need to throw his music out (laughs) because for one thing, when you start listening to it through a particular (laughs) lens, you're like, this is music about intimacy. It says music about spiritual intimacy. And he explicitly abused that theology. Um, And, but also it's, you know, if you take a survivor centered approach to that music, you realize, okay, a lot of the women who he targeted are professional church musicians. These women are cantors, they're music directors in their parishes. They are music educators in Catholic schools. And some of them had to change careers because of the ubiquity of Haas's music and how triggering it was to hear it. Wow. So, it is for Catholics. It is a really imperative question. David Haas's music is everywhere in mainstream Catholicism, and it has created an access barrier for victims of his violence. So, you know, that's one example. Um, with, with like John Howard Yoder, for instance, I, I think people are so obsessed with this idea of can I separate the work from the artist. And my question is, I don't know. Can you look at the work? Right. Right. Um, You know, like I, I made a decision a while ago, never to watch a Woody Allen movie again, because once I under, like I was obsessed with Woody Allen movies when I was in my late teens and early twenties. And the idea of sexual attention from older men was like, I don't know. I mean, it was affirming, even though it was scary. Yeah. Now I look at it and all I see is a predatory ethos. So, you know, I feel the same way about John Howard Yoder. Yeah. People have to take a nuanced approach to this stuff and ask not like, well, are we going to throw everybody out? Like, no. Yeah. <laughs> what you're going to do is you're going to be you're going to think about what are the actual ethical implications of continuing to absorb this work and use it in a communal setting. And you're going to come up with different answers depending on what you're talking about. I think for me, it's been helpful to think about uh, the difference between my willingness to discard pop culture. Like for, for me, the one that I've been wrestling with a little bit as a, a father of younger children is the Cosby show. Cause that was pretty yeah. formational for me growing up. And I sort of lament that I, I don't feel very good showing that to my kids, but I feel completely justified in just saying, you know, I'm going to close that chapter. Those DVDs are not in our house anymore. Uh, it's done. Um, but when it becomes something about our spirituality, I think we have this harder time letting go of that because it is so much deeper of an impact in our lives. Yeah. And so those of us who did not experience abuse are more resistant. You know, it's not like the Cosby DVD sitting at the road. It's like a song that we sing, mm-hmm. uh, spontaneously because it's just had such a deep impact in our lives. I think the the empathy part for me then comes in if I were actually a a survivor of that 
violence. Just think about the depth of that hurt um, when it's not pop culture anymore, but but it's a spiritual violence as well. Like that gets me in a whole different headspace then yeah. of um, of you know what we do with an artist's work. Uh, it it touches us far deeper, I think, when it's when it's spiritual violence combined with sexual violence than it than if it's just a pop culture problem um, combined with sexual violence. You know, both are terrible, but I think there's like an even worse sort of line crossed when it's when it's that spiritual manipulation as well. Yeah, there is. And I, I mean, I would say that there's also like another level of opportunity because you can think mm. you can pose the question for yourself, like when I make the decision to um, prioritize people who have been harmed in this way, like what kind of potential is there for spiritual transformation? I mean, there's going to be <laughs> loss and grief but you know so much of the so much of the resistance to talking about sexual violence comes from a resistance to feeling loss and grief yeah and you know that's that's a spiritual challenge that that we should be up for <laughs> we need to be up for it we're going to take a quick break now to thank our sponsors and invite you to consider sponsoring ing podcast You can also play a big part in helping us spread the word about this podcast by giving our new Facebook page a like and sharing your favorite Ing podcast episodes with friends, encouraging them to subscribe and join this movement of leading, growing, and being as people of faith. Thank you for your continued support of this podcast. In challenging times, how do we prepare for tomorrow? Invest in the path ahead with hope and sharing, love and caring, and with help from Everance. Many of us are taking it day by day, step by step. How can we make room for financial strategies and the Holy Spirit to help guide us for the longer term? Financial services for a purpose. Visit us today at everance.com. It's been an incredible gift, I think, to not just Mennonite Church USA, but churches in general is this our stories untold uh website blog that that lifts up and gives a platform for survivors to tell their stories often in their own words about the pain that they carry and i think it it allows it gives the opportunity um, even for those of us who are trying to pretend that this doesn't exist to engage with with people in a very real and public way that um i just think didn't quite exist very much before you created this, this platform. Can you speak a little bit to the power and need for stories like these to be out there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so our stories untold was um, started in 2012. So it's actually as a, as a project, it's much older than into account. And um, I want to give a shout out to Rachel Halder, who is the, who is the person who, originally came up with the idea and implemented it, um, in, you know, for a few years in cooperation with Barbara Graber, who is, uh, the leader of the snap, the snap Mennonite community. Um, they, you know, our stories untold was the idea. It was Mennonite specific at that point, And the idea was, this is going to be a platform where survivors of sexual violence can speak for themselves without, um, <laughs> you know, 
you'd have to ask Ray what her sort of overall goals were at that point. But I think, I think it just mm-hmm. began with survivors need to have a voice and they don't have one in institutional processes. So, you know, fast forward to, um, I guess it was maybe 2017. I think it was 2017 that into account, um, that our stories untold became a project of into account. Like when, when Hillary, cause Hillary had worked on it previously. And when we hired Hillary Scarcella, um, she brought that, she brought that with her. And what is amazing about it is that it is the way that we, that we run that blog is completely survivor centered. It's like, do you want to use your name? Do you want to name your perpetrator? Do you want to talk about the actual abuse that happened to you? Or do you want to talk more about like the institutional, you know, if, if it happened in a church context and there were enablers and and whatnot, like, do you want to talk about that? It is all up to survivors. And, Mm. um, one of the things that is so destabilizing about sexual violence and its aftermath is that it just kind of rips apart your reality, especially if the perpetrator was somebody that you knew, or if the, the community that is enabling it is a community that you, that you love and are part of. Um, you just don't want to believe it. <laughs> and perpetrators never really share uh, perpetrators don't tend to acknowledge that they are perpetrators or like they will, they will blame survivors for what happened. They will gaslight, they will do all the things that abusive people do. And one of the really powerful things about coming forward with your story is that you take control of the narrative back. Um, you know, when you have perpetrators who are really skilled, it's all about narrative. (laughs) It's all about controlling narrative. Um, and you know, you look at a perpetrator like David Haas, who's been getting away with it for four, you know, four decades. And like, they are masterful at using, you know, in religious communities, using like the language of redemption and second chances and forgiveness and like, and self discovery and transformation. And you know, those are, those are narratives that can be very appealing (laughs) to a community that wants this to disappear. And with our stories untold, we say to survivors, this is as much as is possible. This is going to be on your terms. And, you know, if it, if it's difficult for you to know how to begin to tell this story, we're here to help. So we've, we've done a number of different processes for getting these stories to the point where they're, they're ready to be shared. And sometimes people sit down and and write them with almost no, no need for help from us. Sometimes we do something like give them some guiding questions, like, you know, just basically writing prompts to get them going. Um, sometimes we will do an interview and transcribe it and publish that. So it's just my goal with that platform is to make it as accessible as possible to survivors. Mm. Um, cause not everyone, not everyone is a writer, but even if you're not a writer, we can find a way <laughs> to give you a voice to represent your voice. 
in that in that setting. I, I think I believe in it so much because I've seen how transformative it has been for so many survivors to use it. Even if the processes that they're trying to enact um, or participate in, even if those processes fall apart, even if they end in betrayal, and you know, let's get real, they usually do. Yeah. <laughs> um, institutional processes are are not they don't have great outcomes for survivors. But our goal is always that people, whatever processes they choose to to be part of, that they don't emerge from the accountability, like the stage of asking for accountability, more traumatized than they were when they started. <laughs> you know, yeah. that they have, we know that the impact of trauma can is is altered by how people respond. <laughs> like when something terrible happens, is there somebody in your life who immediately tells you that was not okay? Uh-huh. Um, all of like our stories untold can intervene in that <laughs> in that way because no matter what happens, it's like you told your story. Your truth is out there, um, and you don't, then another thing is that you don't have to keep telling it (laughs) when people are like, what, what was like, I heard that you had an experience with so-and-so, you know, like you can always just be like, you know what, this is a really important thing about my life. Here's the link, read it (laughs) so that I don't have to keep telling it to you. There are all kinds of reasons why it is transformative in the lives of survivors and if it's transformative in the lives of survivors, it's something that is needed to transform the culture. I love that. I'm so grateful that it exists and it's present in our world. Uh, where can people find more about this movement that you're a part of? Uh, can you tell us where online and, and where people can go? Yeah. Um, I mean, there, our website is intoaccount.org. When you go on the Into Account website, there's also a link to Our Stories Untold, um, or you can just go to ourstoriesuntold.com. Um, on the Into Account website, I encourage people to, to read through the blog. There's a lot. There's just a really wide variety of things on there, of resources. Um, we've written quite a bit about Title IX and um, the changes in accountability in higher education for sexual violence. Um, we've written a lot about what it means to believe survivors. Uh, we've written a lot about um, what the patterns that enable sexual violence, what they look like. Um, so you can explore that on our blogs. Another thing that you can do um, is follow in, into account with our stories untold on Facebook. And you can also follow our staff members on Facebook. Most of us maintain pretty public feeds. Um, so that's Hillary Jerome Scarcella. Uh, Jay Yoder, Stephanie Crable, um, our director of student advocacy, um, Erin Bergen, is a little bit less active. Well, she's still on Facebook, um, but she is <laughs> she's working on getting our Twitter account more <laughs> more active because we keep neglecting it. So you can also follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Into Account. I mean, we're pretty active on social media, and I we've got. We've got more and more on our website. And if people wanted to support this movement, is there ways to donate to uh, to keep it going? Yes, um, we love donations. Uh, it's <laughs> it's how we pay ourselves. <laughs> so um, you can on our website 
there's a really easy button. You just click to donate and it'll take you to a network for good platform where you can, you can donate, um, in a secure online way. And if you even small monthly donations are especially welcome because uh, it gives us a monthly income that we can count on. So yeah, we would love, we would love uh, your support. Thank you so much. Um, friends, please go check out the Into Account and our Stories Untold uh, project. It is just such important and crucial work, uh, especially in institutionalized church spaces. Thank you so much for all that you're doing. And um, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Ben. It's been a pleasure. As always, we'd like to thank our guests and all who continue to support in podcast. We'd like to thank Everence, a faith-based financial services organization, for their ongoing support of Ing Podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, leave us a review and share the podcast with your friends. Do you have a topic or someone you think should be interviewed on Ing Podcast? Let us know by emailing theing at menomedia.org. Views and opinions expressed on Ing Podcast are those of our hosts and guests and may not represent that of Leader Magazine or Menno Media. Today's show was produced by me, Ben Weidman. Ing Podcast is a production of Menno Media, a nonprofit publisher that creates thoughtful Anabaptist resources to enrich faith in a complex world. To find out more, visit us online at menomedia.org.